0: Prayer changes things. Bible's absolutely emphatic about it. We've got that echo again, Ted. I don't know what it is about my uh, voice. The Bible is absolutely emphatic about the fact that prayer changes things. Jesus himself uh, affirmed on numerous occasions. Um, just to take one example, for instance, Mark chapter 11, verses. 23 and 24, Jesus memorably said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Or um, Matthew chapter 18 verse 19, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. All the Gospels actually agree that Jesus spoke repeatedly and emphatically about the extraordinary power of prayer. Of course there are those who take those uh, statements to extreme. They, uh, they think of God as a sort of a cash machine dispensing to us whatever we request. The credit they not- card they notice has no limit, all that um, uh, we need is the, uh, the pin number, faith, and uh, out will come the goodies uh, endlessly to us. I note that when Jesus talks about um, uh, throwing mountains into the sea, his call is to have faith in God, to not doubt, only believe. And according to that logic then, the, our inability to see mountains thrown into the sea is only because of our faith. If we had uh, uh, enough faith, well, mountains would be flying around all over the place. Actually, such an understanding is, is, is very dangerous. It generates a, um, a fanatic uh, obsession with people wrestling in their minds, trying desperately to believe the impossible. And eventually, actually, such people either lapse into guilt and self recrimination feeling that they, they are responsible for God not answering their prayer, or actually, more, more likely, I think, they become cynical about uh, um, whether God ever does really promise to answer, uh, 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 whether just God ever does really keep his promise to answer prayer. Jesus is lying, I think. Now, the truth is, actually, neither God nor Jesus ever intended to imply that prayer is a simple magic wand to be weighed. That would be as foolish as putting a five-year-old in a, in a kitchen and, and leaving them to make a three-course meal, wouldn't it? The result is likely to be unpalatable and uh, worse, they are likely to hurt themselves in the process. Prayer is too powerful a weapon to be wielded entirely uh, independently by us. Like any responsible parent, God retains the right to refuse to answer our prayers, to grab the saucepan before it pours boiling water on us, to redirect our prayers. All the author of the uh, uh, authors of the of the gospel actually lived through years of difficult situations, of setbacks, and of, of martyrdoms. Fascinating that they preserved these startling words of Jesus when actually they knew from tough experience not everything gets answered exactly as we want it to be. They knew that these strong words of Jesus did have that underlying qualification that God's ways are not always our ways We cannot, in the end, instruct him. We can only plead to him. But we can ask God. We can pray to God in the knowledge that God is a good father. As Jesus said, which one of you, if he asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, uh, which one of you fathers, that if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then know that you though you are evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much will, more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Or as uh, uh, John wisely uh, said in his uh, letter called First John, uh, 1 John chapter 5 verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will he hears us. Actually we only need to remember Jesus, don't we? In the garden of Gethsemane begging to be spared the cross. To also remember that he in his prayer said nevertheless not my will be done but yours. And the outcome of Jesus' prayer on that night was not, not, not that he got what he requested, but that he gained a deeper confidence in God's painful but good purpose for his life. The next day he went to his death, strengthened and confident. Now we we mustn't think that uh, the Bible presents prayer to God as a simple dispensing machine, it just doesn't work like that. But we mustn't either go too far in the other direction. It's possible um, to so emphasise God's right to refuse our prayers that we miss actually this strong thrust about prayer that Jesus was talking about. Prayer does change things. Asking God for things um, does receive an answer yes, again and again, according to Jesus. God has chosen to, 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 to organise his universe, not like some vast remote control toy, but as a family, where he, the father, listens to the requests of his children, and responds to them. The philosopher Blaise Pascal once wrote that through prayer, God has given us the dignity of causality. He was a philosopher, you see, he used funny words, but you know what he means. Amazingly, we can be involved in God's great Purpose in this world. Through praying to God, we can make things happen. Now, actually in this series on prayer, we've been pursuing it for some weeks, we have come to this rather slowly and we have done so on purpose, self-consciously. Because um, it seems to me but very often when we're thinking about prayer, we, f- we spend far too much time actually thinking about uh, the mechanics of uh, specific requests and uh, seeking God to, 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 to answer in specific practical ways. We try to emphasise actually that prayer is much more fundamentally an overflow of, uh, of, of a Christian's heart. We had learned to love God. We have learned to delight in God. We, we have uh, uh, come to, to share God's heart. And what Christian who knows God cannot, uh, cannot but, but pray? Uh, that seems to be a central theme of Paul's reported prayers. He couldn't help thanking God, praising God, pleading with God, delighting with God in prayer. It wasn't a shopping list. It was the long conversation of a lover. I suspect um, for many of us, frankly, our, our picture of uh, what a prayer warrior is like is that it's um, similar to someone who's um, a trained hostage negotiator. he him talking for long enough. Um, uh, Uh, without uh, uh, offending him by our patient diplomacy, we may extract something from him. Paul portrays himself as a son in love with his father. His great desire was just to spend time with that father His desire for others was that their eyes should be opened so that they would enjoy what he enjoyed. We've seen that over the last few weeks. But now we are going to look in a bit more detail at some of the specific things that Paul prays for. The sort of prayer in specifics that that he calls these um, Romans to. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me, he says. Elsewhere in the Bible, um, it's absolutely clear that we can bring anything before God in prayer. In everything by prayer and uh, petition with thanksgiving to present uh, uh, your needs to God. But uh, Paul wants these uh, Romans to grasp the the, the central thrust of what he feels he needs prayer for. Because it's actually uh, the central thrust of God's great plan for his universe, for the rest of history. He wants these Roman Christians to be his prayer partners in a quite specific task. And that's what I want us to look at uh, this morning. The central, specific task that Paul uh, calls these people to struggle in prayer with him for. That task is for the gospel to go to the world. On Tuesday um, we've got our annual church meeting. Amongst other things, we're going to be endorsing a a number of priorities that we intend to give attention to over the next uh, few years. They are are very important. I hope you've been praying for them. Not, not, Not every one of us will be practically involved in every aspect of these priorities. But you see, we can be together partners in that. As Paul calls these Romans to be partners with him. Some may be more actively involved in doing the practical thing. But he says, join with me in this great task. So, uh, uh, also on Tuesday, we're hoping to appoint an eldership, a proper eldership in, in the church. I know that those... Uh, Church leaders, as they um, uh, look forward with some trepidation to to Tuesday, will be uh, saying to the church, pray for me. We are a partnership together. Some doing more than others, but all praying together. I'm so grateful personally for the, for the prayer from, from other people that I receive and I know that goes for the other leaders too. We need to uphold one another in prayer. Prayer changes things then. We are together here in, uh, 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 united in a great task um, and uh, we cannot do it, any of us, alone. I want us to see Um, Just for a little while, a little bit more about what Paul says he's doing first of all that he wants them to pray for and then uh, look at some of the, uh, the practical realities of that prayer partnership that he's calling them to. Things that then Paul asks them to pray for. He reports to them what he's been doing and what he intends to do so that they know what they should pray for. And uh, having said that that the gospel, seeing the gospel spread to the whole world is his great priority as we will see uh, uh, in a moment. It's interesting uh, actually to look at the first thing that I want to uh, pick out for you that he was involved in. Verses 25 and 26, he explains to them, Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia, that's um, Greece, and uh, Achaia, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For one reason or another, the Christians in Jerusalem had fallen on hard times and had become very poor. And Paul has actually spent months, perhaps years collecting money for those Christians, and now he's going to deliver that money. Alongside being um, apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, Paul great, spent a great deal of his time being fundraiser for the Jews. And his willingness to be sidetracked by those practical needs is an important thing that we need to, to see. He is willing to delay his pastoral visit to Rome that he's intending to make and more important his, his ultimate evangelistic uh, trip to Spain that we'll see in a, in a minute in order to take this gift of money down to Jerusalem. And that perfectly mirrors, you see, Jesus' willingness to turn aside to the poor and the needy and to, to heal them and to take an interest in them despite the fact that his priority was quite clearly to preach the good news and to go to Jerusalem to die on the cross. It is impossible to be involved in gospel ministry without being involved in practical care. It does not work. Care for one another, as Christians in particular, where the Bible expects that care to overflow into the wider world. For us, as individuals, in our workplace, in our neighbourhood, amongst our friends, we are called to those practical works of service. Sometimes they might get, rid- get in the way of, uh, of other priorities that we, uh, um, we feel are more important. But we must be prepared, at least at times, to turn aside. There's there's real value in getting involved in practical care amongst fellow Christians too. And there's a church as well. There is value in in being involved in things corporately as well as individually in the in, in the whole of our lives, all, all over the uh, the country, we are finding churches getting involved in debt counselling or or parenting classes or, or drop-in centres and the like. Frank, frankly, the way the, the, our, what what's happening in, in our society is that is that uh, some needs, especially the emotional needs of people, are becoming more and more and more acute. Very similar to the way that the uh, actually the practical and financial needs of people in, uh, uh, in certainly early Victorian society were so acute, and Christians were at the forefront of meeting those needs. It is not a distraction from gospel ministry, though it may actually, in some ways, delay and hinder the straightforward proclamation of the gospel. But it is integral to that proclamation. If Jesus was prepared to stop by the wayside and talk to beggars and lepers and ordinary people. If the Apostle Paul was prepared to put on the shelf for a moment his plan to go to Spain where the gospel had not been preached in order to care for people in Jerusalem we must accept, that practical care is a vital priority for us. I've learned how difficult it is personally to balance that in my own life. When I, as a pastor in particular, have a call to focus on the ministry of the Word and prayer. You just cannot turn aside from the real needs of the real people. All knew that. Actually, there's another reason why he's uh, taking this money down to Jerusalem, which is uh, which is equally important, and uh, is uh, is uh, certainly from his point of view a, practi- uh, a happy coincidence of. Uh, uh, these two agendas. The first one, practical care, but the second one, Christian unity. Verse 27, they, that is these Macedonian and achaean that's um, modern Greece, the, these, uh, these Gentile believers, were pleased to do it, to give money. Indeed, they owe it to the Jews. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. A major issue in Paul's day was the tension that there was between the Jewish church, centred in, uh, in Jerusalem, and the burgeoning Gentile churches that were springing up all around uh, the world. Paul was determined that those Gentile churches should be free to express their Christianity in a way that was, was appropriate to them, culturally and locally and not to be dominated by one particular cultural agenda from Jerusalem, the Mother Church. But he was equally clear that that liberty that those Gentile Christians had shouldn't imply complete independence. No, God's church is only one church, it may have different expressions in different uh, areas. But she is only one church and different churches are, must express that interdependence, that, that relationship between each other. And he says here's a perfect way of them doing it. The Jews who were spiritually rich with their heritage had given something great for the Gentiles. The Gentiles who were financially rich could now give something back to the Jews and show that mutual bond of affection and be bound together in that. Christian unity is vital in Paul's uh, Paul's mind. There's another another gospel imperative. Christian unity is vital for us. Yes, we don't have quite the global role that the Apostle Paul uh, had and uh, unity is not always perfectly possible after 2,000 years. But what unity can be achieved? We must achieve. It was it was just a pleasure being down in the centre in Bond Square in the centre of uh, town uh, this week and seeing all the different churches uniting in the Feeding of the Five Thousand project. Because there we could express our togetherness. We are distinct. We uh, have uh, um, slightly different uh, cultures and patterns, but we are one. And Christian unity uh, locally for us, here within the church, is vitally important. Paul again and again and again called uh, Christians to love one another locally. Those are two important priorities that Paul has that he asks for prayer for. But um, there is this, this, this larger priority that uh, fits with those and uh, which is his focus. His calling, he says in verse 16, is <coughs> um, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That was, that, that, that was his task and in a sense that was all the church's task as they partnered with him in praying for, uh, uh, for that great vision. In order to do that, in order to see the gospel spread throughout the world, Paul had been uh, really quite systematic in the way that he'd approached his task. Verse 19, the second half, From Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And um, Illyricum, Freddie's not here, is he? Illyricum is Albania. Um, uh, The Gospel was uh, in in Albania before it turned Atheist. Um, That was just a little blip in the last hundred years or so. Um, The Gospel was in Albania before it was in Britain. And Paul was involved in taking it there. When he says he's fully proclaimed the Gospel of God, he doesn't mean he's spoken to every person. He means he has planted a chain of strategic churches right around that region of uh, uh, the eastern Mediterranean so that those churches in turn can reach their local uh, uh, populations. We are a little part of that great vision two thousand years later. We as a church have a particular responsibility to uh, establish a believing community in East Oxford or perhaps believing communities, so that everyone can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't it shocking? 96% of youngsters have had no contact with Christians. That's that's borne out by my uh, uh, experience. And, and, and contact with, with young people. They just don't know what Jesus is all about. And we, we are a long way from being um, able to say the Gospel had been fully proclaimed in the end. We are a long way certainly uh, from, from me feeling that my work is is done here that is uh, something that is uh, still set before us and that we must not rest until we uh, see at least as far as we can that vision established for people in this part of the city to at least know where they can go upon oh, Jesus But more than that, Paul was a, a, a visionary, a global visionary. Look at verses 23 and 24. Now there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through, and to have you assist me on my journey there, after I've enjoyed your company for a while. He had the far reaches of the known world in his mind. Spain, that far western end of the Mediterranean and he was determined to go there. You know, we have the far reaches of the world on our doorstep, it's one of the exciting things about being a a church here. We have uh, international students, all sorts of other displaced people coming here over the next decade. That will undoubtedly grow and I'm praying that we will be involved more and more in this ministry because it is ministry to the ends of the earth. This is what we are called to pray for. We are called to pray for our practical care for one another, for the world. We are called to pray for Christian unity, for those who are working for it, that we can express unity. We are called to pray for gospel ministry. Because prayer changes things. Paul, though, is well aware of the reality of prayer. And uh, if it's all in your, in your um, home groups, if you get to study this passage, I know you're not meeting this week, because of the church meetings, uh, 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 meeting, but uh, if you do get to study this passage, I would encourage you to talk and think and pray about the reality of prayer as a major emphasis. First, uh, reality we have already... Um, Made reasonably plain, I think. Prayer, Paul says, is absolutely vital. It is not an optional extra. He's not going to complete his ministry without the prayers of others. The Gospel is not going to get to Spain without the prayers of others. I urge you, verse 30, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. He invokes Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps remembering all of those admonitions from Jesus about praying and not giving up, and the power of prayer. He invokes the Holy Spirit, the love of the Spirit, the way in which actually the the Spirit pours out His love into our hearts so that we will be prompted to prayer. Jesus told you to, the Holy Spirit prompts you to, he says, Now, I urge you, do it. Pray to God for me. I need it, he says. This is our partnership. And let's not be uh, um, uh, dewy-eyed about it, he says. Prayer is hard work. Join me in my struggle by praying, he says. Prayer can be as hard work as any other worthwhile thing is. Most of us spend at least eight hours a day doing physical work, don't we? Do we begrudge a few hours a week labouring in prayer? Proverbs says, the sluggard does not plough in season, so at harvest time he looks but finds nothing. Remember, I quoted you that statistic that uh, an average Christian prays four minutes a day. How much land can you plow in four minutes a day? How much harvest will you get on four minutes a day? Prayer is hard work, it is a struggle, it is an agony. But God in his wisdom has decided that if we will not work in prayer, we will not get harder. Prayer is absolutely essential. Prayer is hard work And prayers will not always be answered, as we expect. Paul then for something quite specific in verse 31, Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. Now we know actually from the book of Acts But that's not how it worked out. We know that he was betrayed, actually, by those unbelievers in Judea. That he was captured uh, by the Roman authorities, that he languished in jail for a considerable time. And finally, irony of ironies, he was taken to Rome, but as a prisoner in chains. as he tramped along the Appian Way, not as the free traveller, but as the prisoner in chains, as he saw coming over the horizon the great city of Rome that he'd had ambitions for years to visit. Don't you think Paul might have uh, seen a little irony in the way that God answers prayer? Did you see that was in God's wisdom? Paul uh, um, bore witness to his faith under house arrest in Rome. Paul had access to uh, um, soldiers who, in turn, had access to the heart of influence in Rome. Paul um, uh, did refresh those believers, did actually come to them with joy. Because chains couldn't stop him witnessing. So God wasn't actually centrally concerned about whether Paul should be in chains or not. He was concerned to answer those prayers. A gospel witness. Now you and I must must be prepared for that for that. Prayer does change things. Be in no doubt about it. God invites us to be partners in prayer. And uh, as we pray, he gives us the privilege of seeing answers. It is hard work and those answers are sometimes a surprise. Sometimes there is real cost in those prayers being answered. Uh, when I lived in Cambridge, the other place <coughs> and was considerably younger I used to meet with a, a friend of mine to pray and um, we, um, both of us were thinking about our future, not really knowing where, where the future lay um, and we used to pray regularly about that, that God would use us in our lives and um his story has been long, like mine, since then. One of the much more one of the more painful elements of his story has been childlessness. And uh, I prayed I prayed with him for many years, actually, about uh, the fact that he and his wife couldn't have children. And and he always resolutely prayed that uh, they would be he and his wife would be enabled in ministry with or without children. The last uh, year, two years perhaps, uh, an extraordinary series of events have happened to uh, my friend so that now he is involved in in, uh, a very, very exciting and challenging ministry in a very dangerous situation. He's the only person I know who, who I would have to say there is a significant chance that he could get killed. And uh, he couldn't go there if he had children. He just could not uh, risk leaving those children orphans. But God has opened up this extraordinary avenue of ministry for. Which has been very, very painful. And yet, which is bringing great glory to God. So I want you to ask yourself, Are you really committed to the priorities that God has for this world and for your life? There may be great consequences. Jesus had to go to the cross And he warned absolutely every, everyone who would follow him that they must take up their cross. Baby. But you see, where we pray for God's priorities, there is proof. There is more proof than you could imagine. The reality of prayer is perhaps not the glory we would like it to be. But God does answer. When you